0: The scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. It can be found on page 841 in the Black Bibles. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Great job waking up this morning. Uh, I also, as you can see, woke up this morning. Um, Glad to be back with y'all, glad to be back in Mark. Let me give you a little bit of a framework here. My, uh, I'm going to give you my coronavirus framework uh, as we kind of enter into this uh, sort of strange cultural season that we're in right now. So here's the way I'm thinking about it, just so you know. People ask me if I'm uh, worried or afraid, and my answer to that question is no, I'm not worried or afraid. I'm not worried or afraid personally as a human being uh, because as far as I know, I'm very young. I'm so young, no, I'm young and I'm healthy, you know, so I'm not worried about getting sick um and I'm not worried as a christian as a as a follower of jesus it is the it is the posture of a follower of Jesus. Not to live in fear, really, of anything with respect to our life or our health, and also, uh, it is the posture of a follower of Jesus to walk into the pain and not to run away from the pain. We are called as followers of Jesus to think of others and not of ourselves. And so, if there are sick and if there are ill and if there are suffering and if they are hurting people, our call as followers of Jesus is to walk into that and not away from it. But also our fo- our call as followers of Jesus is to live in light of love for the other. Um, and so what that means is that my own personal lack of fear and lack of concern may not be your own personal lack of fear and lack of concern. And so my choice as a follower of Jesus is to live in love for the other. Uh, and so... One of, the, one of the things that that means is that in an unknown or in a perceived unknown, I'm going to be more cautious than some of you may want me to be or want us to be. Um, you know, anything will divide a church. Did you know that? Anything will divide a church. Anything. A, 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 a virus, the, the, the devil would love nothing more than to get Christians in a, in a state of either over panic or over non-panic, you know, so on the one hand where you've got like, look, I'm going to be super spiritual, and so by golly, you better shake my hand, you know, that kind of thing, or on the other hand, I'm not going to come to church because I'm freaking out, you know, we're not, let's let's not do either one of those things, okay, uh, That that's my goal, so here's the deal, I'm not going to shake your hand, uh, not because I'm afraid, not because I'm scared, but because I am going to make the choice of living in love toward the other, if you're, you know, of anxiety or anything like that. Uh, It's very similar to what the Apostle Paul, see I just touched my face, did you see that? Um, It's very similar to what the Apostle Paul talks about uh, with respect to the faith of the other. You know, an example, Um, I do not believe that consuming alcohol is sinful, Uh, in a a vacuum. It is not a sinful act on its own. Some people do and other people have struggled with addiction and there are a variety of reasons why in any given setting I could be with a number of people and not partake in that way. That would be a consistency with the law of of love, and there are many other uh, there are many other kind of examples of that, and so with respect to this season that we 're in, which is unknown, and there are people who are afraid and there are people who are think that people who are afraid are being silly you know kind of all of these things i 'm going to go with identifying with those who are more apprehensive that 's just what i 'm going to do um, and, and and so my encouragement to us as the church is to not allow this season to be something that divides us in in any way shape or form you know not like the I've got the bigger faith so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna lick people you know kind of thing just to just to show you you know like how much it is that I that I you know you know don't let's just not do that Let's just love one another and be gracious to one another. If somebody doesn't want to shake your hand, it doesn't mean that they're that they don't like you or that they're a a weak Christian or something like just just love people, you know? That's the that's the goal. Um I can't give you instructions on that. So I'm just going to say just love each other, you know? Um and God will be gracious to us, and God will be care for us, and 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 and, and we'll figure this out. And and like anything else that goes along into the church, but that's the way I'm thinking about it. So if I don't shake your hand, don't write a nasty email to to, to me or about me. It's just that uh, I'm I'm going I'm just going the other direction uh, by choice. So that's kind of how I'm I'm rolling. All right, I probably should pray. Let's pray, Father. We uh, do call upon you to uh, just to unite us as your people, to unite your church. We pray, Father, that as we now look into your word, as we delve into it, as we dig into it, Father, that you would challenge us. Uh, This is a passage about all of the many ways that you challenge us as your people, and so we pray that you would do that by your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if I had been in the audience at the time, I think I would have been prepared to have cringed. You can ask my wife or my family, is that I have a I have a low tolerance for awkward I'm a, I'm a super cringy person when it comes to awkward things so i'm pretty sure that i would have cringed on this and the whole thing was set up to be completely cringeworthy it was 2009 the setting was the stage of britain's got talent which is exactly the same thing as america's got talent but strangely enough in britain and not in america the contestant walked onto the stage and everything was produced to make you think that a train wreck was about to occur. The contestant was a middle-aged woman, 47 years old at the time of the show. She was dressed in a plain dress. She wore no makeup whatsoever. Nothing about her screamed, I'm British and I have talent, you know, at all. Even the music that played uh, in the background as she made her way onto the stage made you think that something fairly comical was about to happen. Simon Cowell, you know, the host of the show and the American one, he, he sat behind this desk kind of rather smugly, kind of smirked, and asked her condescending questions about what she was doing there. But then the music started, and this woman began to sing. I dream a dream from Les Mis. And it was one of those moments where you couldn't really decide if the voice was actually coming from this human being or if it was being like dubbed in from somewhere. It was as if you were transitioned into uh, the life of that character in that musical, Fontaine, with all the beauty and passion, tragedy that that song invokes, and the crowd, the judges, the television audience, me on YouTube, you know, we were all completely in shock and the camera panned backstage where this woman's voice coach was standing at the time and he was just laughing and he turned around to the camera and he said you didn't expect to hear that did you no you didn't it was a moment of sheer beauty when you expected exactly the opposite to occur If there's one thing that we have learned thus far as we've been traveling through the gospel of Mark, it's that he doesn't do very well when he, Jesus, that Jesus doesn't do very well when he is constrained by people's expectations of him. Uh, 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 Joe just talked about this with respect to the song that he sang. Jesus does not do very well in the boxes that we create for him. He's always busting out of them. He challenges tradition. He challenges our expectations of him at every turn. He heals people. He tells stories with hidden meanings. He calms the wind and the waves. He cast a demon out of a Gentile. He healed a woman who made him unclean by touching him. He raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead. None of this has been expected. But his reputation as one who taught with authority, as one who had power over nature, over demons, over disease, even over death. That reputation was growing and growing and growing. He was becoming famous until he came home until he reached his hometown of Nazareth, the place that he grew up after he was born in Bethlehem. There in Nazareth, in his hometown among his own people, Jesus was largely rejected. Why? Why was he rejected there? What does that have to do with you and me? What can we learn from this? Well, the reason that Jesus was rejected in Nazareth was largely because the people Of the town could not get past what they knew, and I'm putting that in quotation marks on purpose, on what they knew already to be true about him because of their familiarity with him. They were comfortable with who they thought Jesus was, and they would not allow any evidence to the contrary, and there was a ton of evidence to the contrary to break them out of their preconceived notions about who Jesus was. You know what? This is really very often true about all of us as well. It's possible. It's likely even. There are many aspects regarding who Jesus is and what he intends to do in the world and what he intends to do in our lives that we miss. We create a Jesus in our minds And that is the Jesus that we worship. Whether or not this is actually the Jesus that the Bible presents to us. The challenge for us then is to truly embrace Jesus. Not just to cognitively embrace Jesus, but to embrace Jesus with all parts of us, with our wills, opening ourselves to being challenged by him at every single turn. And, and, and setting our wills to conforming ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit more and more into his image and not doing the opposite, which is our great temptation of taking the Jesus the Bible presents to us, and conforming us, I mean conforming Him into our image, making a Jesus that is like us, instead of us becoming more like who Jesus is. So this is the challenge, and a challenge I will say it really is. It's challenging for three reasons. We see these reasons in this passage. The first reason is misapprehension. This is the challenge of who we want Jesus to be and this challenge is grounded in fear. The second challenge is familiarity, it's the challenge of who we know Jesus to be and this challenge is grounded in idolatry. The third challenge is the challenge of disbelief, who it is that we believe Jesus to be and this challenge is grounded ultimately in pride. So first, misapprehension, the challenge of who we want Jesus to be. All right, I need to go backward just a little bit here and connect this passage to what we just read from Mark 6 uh, to the very end of Mark 5 that Brad talked about last week. Um, you know, but it, honestly, you know, chapter and verse, it took me a long time in my life to actually realize this. When Mark wrote this gospel, he did not include the chapter numbers or the verse numbers. Somebody added those later. I didn't know that until I was like 20 or something. Um, but so there you go. So these things are not original to the text. So what's connected before, it's not like this gigantic break. It's, you know, so these things are connected. So if you do have a Bible open, look with me at chapter 5 verse 43 Mark writes this and he strictly charged them that no one should know this And then he told them to give her something to eat. Now what this is referring to is the fact that Jesus had come to the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, probably in Capernaum, whose daughter had died because Jesus was delayed in going to heal her. He was delayed because he was pushing his way through a crowd and a woman who had been bleeding her entire life uncontrollably touched the hem of his garment and was healed. And Jesus stopped and spoke to her. And to the crowds. And in that intervening time, this 12-year-old girl died. But Jesus went to the house anyway, commanded her to rise, and she rose. So he healed her. Not only healed her, he revived her. He resuscitated her from the dead. And then he said, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Why? Why would he do this? Well, it's because he knows That in that point of the journey of faith of the people that were present in that home at that time, every single one of them would misinterpret and misrepresent this event. That they would make Jesus out to be somebody that he is not. And confusion would begin to spread and dilute the true identity of Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. This is something that he did very often in the Gospel of Mark. He would heal somebody and he would say, don't tell anybody. We've already seen this. There's even a a theological phrase for this, that theologians call this the messianic secret of Mark, that Jesus is all the time telling people to not tell them what he'd just done. The reason why is because they misunderstand what he's doing and who he is. They don't understand his purposes. So what's the root of this misapprehension? What's the root of this longing for Jesus to be who we want him to be? The people wanted him to be some kind of magician, some kind of faith healer, or some kind of uh, army captain, some kind of army warrior. What do we want him to be and why? What's the root of that? Well, I think the root to our misapprehension of who Jesus is is ultimately fear. We live so much of our lives in fear And we want a Jesus who directly addresses our fears. Our fears, of course, are varied. Many here, some who have been followers of Jesus a long time, uh, and, and, and definitely sense and understand that our culture is changing, some of you here fear, ultimately, a loss of cultural influence as a follower of Jesus. Maybe you fear a loss of power, and cultural influence as a Christian. There was a time, if you've been a Christian a long time, if you're my age or older or maybe just a little bit younger, there was a time when what you believed about the world, what you believed about morality, what you believed about ethics, what you believed about what is simply right and wrong, there was a time when those things actually held cultural sway. Even for those who did not share your views, they weren't Christians. But that standard of kind of the Judeo-Christian ethic kind of infused the life of our culture. But that time, as I'm sure you're understanding and feeling, is diminishing. It's waning. And as it wanes, fear begins to creep in. Fear of the unknown of life in a world where the broad ethic of Christianity is no longer the dominant cultural ethos. And so what we really sometimes want Jesus to be and to do is just to make that stop. And perhaps not to make it stop so the marks of the kingdom of God will be present in our midst, because that's actually pretty disruptive. The kingdom of God is very disruptive. It's more disruptive than our desire just for the culture to to be a little bit more moral. But what we sometimes want Jesus to do is to make that stop so that we can be more comfortable and settled. That our life just won't be so confusing. That it just won't be so hard. You know, it's instructive that one of the most repeated commands in all of the Bible is some variant of do not fear. Some version of that, do not fear. Jesus still sits on his throne. He still rules over all things. He is with you. And the fact that Jesus is with you is enough. Even as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, be that physical death or the shifting sands of our cultural moment, you see, Jesus is not your personal miracle worker. He is not the one who goes ahead of you just to smooth out the contours of life and to make our living in this culture an easier and a simpler place to live and to be. He is the Savior. He is the King. He's the one who is with you no matter which way the winds of our culture blow. So that is our first challenge. It's a misapprehension. The second challenge in receiving Jesus for who he truly is is familiarity. This is the challenge of who we know Jesus to be. Quotation marks that cannot be seen in the uh, recording, just as a notation, were there in the air. And those quotation marks are important. Because the problem of familiarity lies at the heart of why the people of Nazareth had absolutely zero imagination regarding all of the evidence that Jesus was somebody more than the guy who just grew up there, Joseph's son, the carpenter. But they had no imagination for that. Why? Because they knew him, right? They knew him. Where did this man, they say, get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How were such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus summed it all up immediately. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household, which is an ancient euphemism. He he didn't invent that. That was an ancient euphemism. That is very similar to our own. Familiarity breeds contempt, right? Familiarity breeds contempt. They just, the people of Nazareth just could not get past what they already knew about Jesus. That he was a guy who grew up in this village, he was a carpenter. We know his parents, we know his brothers, we know his sisters. Who does he think he is? That's the question. We're not so much uh, different these days from the people in Nazareth. Think about this for just a minute. What is it that you absolutely right now know to be true about Jesus? That's kind of a trick question. Some of you here uh, doubt that you you really can know anything definitive about Jesus at all. That's okay. We're going to talk about that in the next point. But if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, what do you know to be true about him? The next question is, are those things that you know to be true about him confirmed in the scriptures? Or are these things that you just kind of have grown up with? Here are a few things that we should know about Jesus from Mark. Mark tells us, first of all, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is God and man. And he must be God and man to undertake the monumental work of redemption that he undertakes. Mark tells us also that Jesus died a horrific death on a cross, which others, most notably the Apostle Paul, tells us is substitutionary. Jesus bore the sins of his people when he went to death so that we, his people, don't bear the wrath of God. Mark tells us that on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead, physically, bodily. He was not a spirit or a ghost. He was the glorified christ paul again tells us that jesus resurrection is the down payment and the guarantee of the resurrection of all who trust in him these things we must believe in order to be followers of jesus and these things you may believe indeed these are the core beliefs of the christian faith but what else is it that you know to be true about Jesus, or you know to be true about the Bible. Let me give you an example. Somewhere in the late 90s, I don't remember exactly when this was, I was newly married, and I was in seminary. Shannon and I went from St. Louis to uh, Tupelo, Mississippi, which is in northeast Mississippi, and my aunt lives there. And while we were visiting my aunt, one of her friends was at her house. And uh, when we were, I was talking to her friend, and she learned that I was uh, studying to be a pastor, and she said, oh, you're studying to be a pastor. I have a story for you. And she said that she and her family for generations had been going to this one particular church in town, but very recently she knew that she had to leave it because the minister there was insane, uh, basically, is what she told me. She left because she told me that a new preacher that had just come to town had preached a sermon shortly after Christmas. That, and in that sermon, he said that although it has become culturally normative for us to believe that there were three wise men that went to you know the manger with the angels, and there were three wise men, they were there on the night that Jesus was born. The Bible doesn't actually tell us that that's how it happened. The Bible, this preacher said, said, that it doesn't actually tell us how many wise men they were, and secondly, that because Herod killed all of the children in that region that were two years old and under, that it wasn't actually on the same night that Jesus was born. It was sometime later than that. And she said to me, "Can you believe he said that? My whole life I've known there were three wise men, and they went on the night that Jesus was born. Can you? Be- He's crazy. So I knew I had to leave. What do you think?" And I was diplomatic because I was at my aunt's house, but I stood up for my fellow you know, pastor, my, man, my fellow man of the cloth, whoever he may be, bless you, in Mississippi. Uh, you know, uh, th- That is not what the Bible actually says. He was right you know, about all of those things. But I was standing there having a conversation with somebody who just knew that the opposite was true. Just knew it. And, and, and no matter what the Bible actually says, anybody who says otherwise is nuts or crazy. You might be thinking, I'm nuts right now, but read your Bible. There are three gifts, not necessarily three people. And that wasn't on the same night that Jesus was born, it was a little bit later. That's all, that's all we know. But it was kind of a disaster, right? But it, it, it really gets more serious even than that. Because some of us actually believe that Jesus hates all of the same people that we hate. You just know that to be true. I mean, do you believe, and maybe you believe that Jesus would call you to simply put a cocoon around yourself and around your life and around your family and just be safe and keep everybody else away. But if that's the case, why was he stubbornly always having dinner with people that we would never go to dinner with? He was all the time meeting with people that we wouldn't be caught dead eating a meal with. Why was he doing that? Why did he allow people who were unclean to actually touch him, like the bleeding woman in the very last chapter? Not only be close to him, but to touch him. Some of us actually may believe that Jesus would sanction things that we've believed our entire life, like the segregation of races and ethnic groups, that he would endorse or improve people living their lives that way? But why then, if that's the case, did he make a Samaritan man the hero in one of his stories? Why did the Apostle Paul tell us that there is no Jew or Gentile for all or one in Christ? In fact, almost all of the letters of the Apostle Paul from Romans on is a, is a, is a tearful encouragement for, peop- for the church Not to be ethnically segregated, but to be one together in Christ. Why then do we struggle to grasp the challenge that is that Jesus presented us in the Bible? What's the root? Well, the root of that may be what the Bible calls idolatry, which is essentially creating a Jesus in our own image. A Jesus who confirms more to what we want the world to be like than what he is actually like as it's presented to us in the Bible. Because we sometimes want a Jesus who confirms our desire for wealth, or for power, or for cultural influence, or for comfort, or ease, and he doesn't do any of those things. He's challenging us all the time. This is the Jesus of the scriptures, but it's not the Jesus that we sometimes know to be true. So how do we break out of that? How do we actually come to a place of allowing ourselves and opening ourselves up to be challenged by the Jesus the Bible presents to us? Well, the way to break out of that is by, is to remain teachable and humble until you breathe your very last breath. Y'all, I'm getting, I mean, the older that we get, the harder this is, Right? You know that people get set in their ways. So the older we get, the harder it is for us to remain teachable and humble until we breathe our very last breath. But I think that that's what the Holy Spirit would want to cultivate in us. Uh, You know, uh, it's, it's just a prayer that every single day we could wake up and say, Oh, Holy Spirit, please conform me more into the image of Jesus today and not the other way around. And if all of us did that, our lives would take on a wholly new shape, I think. Our church would take on a wholly new shape. Our homes and our workplaces, our neighborhoods would be impacted because Jesus would be there. One way to do this is to refuse to live in an echo chamber of confirmation. This is hard, actually. You know, if you only read the Bible alone... Or if you only read the Bible with people that already agree with everything that you think about the world, you'll never break out of that. If you have a, if you have a favorite, and I'm sure it's not me, if you have a favorite preacher or a podcast, that's your guy you know, that you listen to all the time. And, and you listen to that person because they confirm everything that you already think about the Bible, you're never going to break out of that. And this is why it is so important that we actually live in relationship. And I mean real relationships where you have people around you that you wrestle with the scriptures with. Because if you never wrestle with the Bible, if the Bible is easy for you, if you read it and you feel like, I know what that's saying. Oh, that fits into all of my systematic categories that I've already, you know, know, contained. Then you're not actually reading it. You're really not. You're not reading the entire thing. Because if you never wrestle with the Bible, you're not reading it. If you don't put people in your life who challenge what you know to be true, you're gonna remain stuck and you're not grow you're not gonna grow. So who is in your life that challenges what you just know to be true about Jesus? That's the second challenge. And the third challenge we see in March six, and I'm gonna close here, is disbelief who we believe Jesus to be and I'm going to close with this there is a difference in pride than in struggle if you read through the gospel of Mark one of the things that you will see or any of the other gospels is that Jesus deals very gently with people who doubt He deals very gently with people who struggle with believing in him and confess it. You know, the the person that comes to Jesus and says, I believe, help my unbelief. He's gentle with. A couple weeks ago, we, we saw his interaction with the rich young man. And the rich young man struggled to believe what Jesus had taught him about his wealth. And the text tells us that Jesus was grieved because he loved that man. Because he struggled. Jesus has tons of time for those who struggle with doubt and struggle to receive him and to, and to, and, and to believe him in, in, in all of the fullness that he is. The people that Jesus has very little time for and very little patience with are the people whose hearts are hard, who feel like they have it all figured out, who feel like they have it all together, who feel like they have nothing left to be taught, who feel like their sole role in life is to teach others but to never to be taught. Those would be the religious leaders that he uh, interacts with. And here, in his hometown of Nazareth, what he's dealing with are people whose hearts are hard against him, who can't receive him at all for who he is, who just are dismissive of him. And the text tells us something very shocking there, that he could do almost no mighty works there, except for lays hands on a few people and heal them. Faith even, a, even a, 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 a weak faith is what Jesus is looking for. Even a, even a weak and a struggling and a nascent in the beginning and a wrestling faith is an opening, it is a crack, it is a fissure that, that Jesus invades and makes whole. Are you prideful or are you struggling? That is the question of familiarity with Jesus. So the challenge that we have as followers of Jesus is to humble ourselves and to open ourselves to the challenge that Jesus is, not who we want him to be, not who we know him to be, and not just who we are automatically believe him to be, but to continue to grow in who he is. Our savior, our king, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you present who you are to us in the Bibles. We know that, Father, there are many ways that we struggle with this. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us as we believe in even our unbelief. Amen.